You are listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with faith leaders and academics to explore deep questions of meaning. Questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as, why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to welcome to our show Rabbi Mark Katz, Rabbi at Temple Ne'er Tamid in Bloomfield, New Jersey, and author of The Heart of Loneliness. Rabbi Mark, welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. It's great having you here. This book that you've written, The Heart of Loneliness, what, why, what brought you to write this book? So I actually had, you know, like everybody, an experience of profound loneliness at a point in my life. I'm very happily married now, but I was married once before my current marriage. And, um, and I was going through a divorce and it was right around the high holy days. And look, you and I both know as rabbis that the best sermons come out of personal experience. So I was feeling incredibly lonely at that point. So I first wrote a sermon about loneliness, um, kind of to explore that feeling, because at the end of the day, loneliness really is the space between the person you know yourself to be and the people in the world who can see you in that way. So like to use the divorce as an example, my life was falling apart, but there's a point in every divorce where really nobody knows about it. So people were relating to me and asking me about chair setup and sound checks and all the things that you get during high holidays. And I just wanted to scream and be like, these aren't important. Like my life is falling apart. And so because there was this gap between the people in my life who could see me like I was and my story, I felt incredibly lonely. So I gave this sermon and it touched a number of people. And so when I had an opportunity to do what's called a Jewish a Jewish Eli talk, which is basically the Jews version of TED talks. I gave it on this. And again, people reacted to it because we don't talk about loneliness enough in our world. And so I had this opportunity to write this book and I figured that I would turn these two short pieces into a longer piece as a way to really talk about the many different kinds of lonelinesses that I as a congregational rabbi see. And you really, in the book, you really explore lots of different aspects of loneliness from loneliness of the end of marriage, as you just mentioned, to loneliness in marriage, loneliness of leadership, which I thought was very powerful, loneliness of sickness and loss, again, very powerful. What, why, when you say that people tend not to talk about loneliness, why, why do you think that is? I mean, I think there's still a lot of shame around loneliness, right? You think that, um, if you can't connect with other people and find a way to be fully seen that there's something deficient in you instead of in the society that we live in. But the truth is it's not your fault if you're lonely, especially during this era of COVID. But the truth is loneliness is caused by any number of factors in society. For example, the move as I, I was just reading um, Lord Jonathan Sachs book um, and he was talking about the move from the we to the I right? If you're going to be a me-focused person instead of societal-focused, like that's going to cause loneliness. If you're going to engage with people on social media platforms that only show you a piece of a relationship rather than the whole relationship of sitting with somebody, um, that's going to cause loneliness. Um, if you look at the fact that our world is more diffuse and that people are living across the country from family, that's going to cause more loneliness. And so what we find, by the way, is that studies have shown that people are much more lonely than they were a generation or two ago. 
And the world is headed in that direction. Everybody at a certain point will feel lonely. Um, and um, the goal is to figure out what tools to put in your life in order to address those periods of loneliness that come up. You, and you mentioned the, 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 the self. In the book, you, you refer to the rise of the sovereign self, uh, a term coined by Stephen M. Cohen and Arnold Eisen. Um, we've seen this with um, Bowling Alone, um, which you also refer to in the book. Is there a way to undo society to make us less lonely? You seem to address that at the very, near the end of the book. And I wonder if you can share with some of our listeners part of that. I mean, you can call me pessimistic, but I actually think society is not gonna be the thing that helps people who are lonely. It's going to be the smaller communities that you are a part of. It's going to be like you and I as rabbis choosing that we're gonna be a synagogue that addresses loneliness, right? And by the way, loneliness is not the same as being alone, right? I'm sure many of us have felt incredibly whole when we've gone out into the desert or into the forest and been alone. Henry David Thoreau called solitude his greatest companion. Uh, and I'm sure that many of us have also felt, for example, being in a crowded train station or even at a party, incredibly lonely, surrounded by people. So what synagogues need to do, smaller communities, but also friend groups, family, is to provide avenues for real connection. And that is places where people can reveal and fully show off their full self to another so they can be seen exactly who they are. And if loneliness is caused in the gap or is found in the gap between who you are and those who see you, providing avenues for people to share that. Um, that is going to be the thing that's going to kind of move against the tide of society, which is only getting worse. So you, you said that may be pessimistic. I don't think that's pessimistic at all. Maybe I'm biased because I'm also a rabbi and therefore in charge of a community. But but isn't the, the essence of connection in small groups? You know, we are social beings. We always have been. And so finding groups where we have common interests, but also particularly not just interests, but as you said, just being seen for who we are, being remembered, you know, having our name remembered, being, having somebody ask about us. You know, isn't that, of course, we can't have the larger society, 7 billion people on the planet, addressing this, but, but in small pockets, that seems to be what you'll say. I think that's profoundly optimistic. I, I, I think so. I guess the divide is about whether or not we can truly change behavior or just put people in situations where they will feel seen. So I'll give you an example, right? Um, I think that teenagers right now are in big trouble. And you find, by the way, that teen suicide, teen depression rates are up, even not counting the COVID era. And I think part of that has to do with um, this sense of uh, a challenge that teens have in communicating in the way that many of us pre-technology have been able to do. When you walk into a group of teenagers and you are not facilitating that interaction and you will find the majority of teenagers are on their phones. And so sometimes, by the way, you have to, in synagogues, take the phones away from your eighth graders to force them at dinner before religious school class to talk to one another, right? And the, the act of being on your phones means that you, you can keep people at arm's distance, right? You can, for example, wait to respond to them. If you don't want to deal with a hard conversation, you can what's called ghost them, which is that you never just respond. You just disappear off the face of the earth. And the truth is, I think, I don't know 
despite the conversations that I've had with, I teach my 10th grade confirmation class in the congregation, despite the conversations I've had, I'm not sure if I'm ever gonna get my students to have a different relationship to, with technology. But what I can do is give them moments of reprieve from that in the congregation. So hopefully they feel a little less lonely in that moment. So I think that's why I mentioned that I was pessimistic. And uh, look, I, I totally sympathize with you. The, um, because as people, they, they try to rack up friends on Facebook and oh, I've got 2000 friends. But as you said at uh, one point in the book, it's about confidence. It's about people who you can talk to honestly and openly. And, and actually that's very few. And that's the sort of relationship we should be, relationships we should be harnessing. Those whom we can be really true with ourselves, about ourselves to other people. And you don't do that on a Facebook feed or a Twitter feed. Exactly, exactly. I forget where I heard this study, um, but um, I once read that, you know, in the 1950s, specifically men, uh, the average man had, I think, three or four people outside their family for which they could confide in. Right now, the number is 0.8. And that's a really scary number in the sense that you need people that you can come to if something is wrong. And you're going to feel profoundly lonely if you don't have those people in your life. And so for people who don't have that in their life, you address this in the book, but I wonder if you can share, for people who don't have this in their life, what do they do? Because I, I think you're absolutely right that it's important for us to have people to whom we can relate so that we can be seen. But if somebody is listening to this show and thinking, I don't have anyone like that, what do they do? Where do they go? What can they, how can they change that? So in the book, I talk about four directions you can go when you're feeling lonely, up, in, out, and back. And so let me just address each one briefly. The out is what we've been talking about. It's been reaching out to people, looking for that connection. And by the way, understanding that there are gonna be people who fail you, but for the most part, if you put yourself out there, most people will come through for you. But then there's the other two, right? So for example, let's talk about the back. Um, as a religious individual, back means looking at the stories of our ancestors as a way to feel seen and heard. So for example, and it doesn't, by the way, have to just be the stories of our ancestors. When I was going through a divorce, I looked at every piece of media that dealt with divorce. I mean, like my best friend was Ross from Friends because he was also a divorced guy, right? If you can somehow find your story in others' stories, there's even if they are fictional, it feels a little less lonely because the, the little voice in your head that says that what you're feeling is an anomaly goes away because you start to see yourself mirrored in them. And so in the book, I talk about, for example, if you're going through a divorce, looking at Hagar. If you are feeling the challenge of looking to find a, a, a mate, go and find Tamar in the Bible. If you're looking about the challenge of what it means to be in a relationship that's not working so well, look at Eve and that these characters can be these kindred spirits. And then you've got the up, right? And that's the religious individual. The sense that, you know, prayer and connection with God can actually help sustain you. And people with real spiritual prayer practices can find that the universe, even if you don't believe in God, seems to be listening to you and understanding you in a way when people are failing. And finally, there's the in. Um, and I talk about the in in two ways. It's about, first of all, learning to love yourself. Because if you're stuck at home on a Saturday night, with yourself and you don't like yourself, that's a pretty bad companion to be with. I once heard it said that um, meditation is a little bit like being trapped 
uh, in a phone booth with a crazy person and a megaphone, right? And so if you can learn to love that person in the, in the phone booth with you, then you're going to learn to be a little bit more self-reliant and be okay if you're alone. And the second piece is the sense that if you've got something in your life that can sustain you besides relationships, then when relationships fail, you're gonna find that there's a cushioning. And so that's a sense of mission, a sense of purpose, doing something professionally that you love or volunteering, finding ways in which you feel that your existence matters even if other people can't see. This is that's so wonderful. It's such a, an important map basically for individuals to choose their own route to be able to try to work their way out of loneliness. I, I mean, when you, you quote in the book, uh, Rabbi Hanoch of Alexander, who says that the, the real exile of Egypt is that they learned to endure it. They, they became used to their, their difficulty as opposed to, and it was only when they cried out, when they called out that they were able to transcend and move beyond that difficult period. And what you're describing to me really sounds like I could go up, I could go in, I could look out, but there are, there are ways for me to address this loneliness. Absolutely. What we're going to do is we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I want to particularly talk about, since you mentioned COVID, I want to talk about the chapter um, about the loneliness of sickness and loss. So we're, you're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich, my guest this evening, Rabbi Mark Katz, Rabbi at Temple Ne'er Tamid and author of The Heart of Loneliness. And we'll be back after this break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom here in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Rabbi Mark Katz, Rabbi at Temple Ne'er Tamid in Bloomfield, New Jersey, and author of the really wonderful, a really powerful book, The Heart of Loneliness. And we've been talking about, before the break, we were talking about, about potential ways out of loneliness. And I wanted to explore now the, the loneliness of sickness, particularly, because we are in an extraordinary, um, extraordinary circumstance whereby we are in, we, we're in our homes, we, we have governor's orders to tell us to stay where we are, we're not allowed to interact with people in community as we normally would. And so we're connecting in different ways. We're connecting online, which you know, we're very thankful for because we couldn't have done that 20 years ago. Um, we couldn't have had online temple services and all this kind of thing. But at the same time, we're very much with ourselves. But particularly, the chapter on sickness, the loneliness of sickness and loss, I, I wonder if you can explore a little, share a little about the loneliness of sickness, since so many people, especially in this country, are now going through that loneliness of sickness. So the paradigm that I use, because each of these different kinds of lonelinesses get a biblical character, uh, is that of King Uzziah in the Torah. So King Uzziah is this guy who's really arrogant. And in order to be punished for his arrogance, God gives him this ancient skin disease called Sarat, which is usually translated as leprosy, but it's a little bit different. Um, and because of that, he becomes this kind of impure pariah, ends up getting locked into, I mean, this should resonate with everybody, locked into a tower, unable to leave. He's brought his food and he basically sits there for the rest of his life as other people take on leadership until finally he dies and he's buried actually not with kings, but outside of the, the village gates. And um, that feeling, right? of being other, of being separate, 
Reminds me of Susan Sontag's famous line that she begins her book, which is about AIDS um, and, um, and tuberculosis, where she basically says that there's two kingdoms, right? The kingdom of the well and the kingdom of the ill. And that we have this kind of forced migration when we get sick from one to the other. So I wanna talk actually about the fact that when you're sick, although it takes you by surprise, there's a piece of you that kind of knows that this is gonna happen, right? Um, and it, by the way, it's horrible when it does. But if you are going to the doctor, one of the challenges of being sick, for example, is that a doctor relates to your illness rather than to you as a person. They might, for example, talk to your spouse rather than you because there's something about talking to a well person as opposed to a sick person. But you're standing here being like, no, no, I'm the one you need to be talking to. There is this migration from one world to the other and it's really challenging. The truth is, COVID has set up a situation that because we don't know that the other is sick, every person, whether they are well or ill, is forced into the migration of the world of the ill, right? They're isolated, separate from one another. You get the challenge, of course, of not being able to hug another person, of not being able to see people outside of the mass, of being separated, of needing to be over Zoom, which is not the same as being in person. But you also get, and I think this is one of the reasons that COVID is so difficult. If the, if the reason why loneliness exists is because of a chasm between the person you know yourself to be and the people who see you that way, then you, you still are you, but the rest of the world is relating to you through a lens of a virus. You are scary, you are sickening, you um, are dangerous. And so what happens is you lose your sense of self in the same way that someone who is actually sick loses their sense of self. And you don't have people fully relating to you anymore. And so COVID hurts all the more so and feels all the more lonely because you lose the full connection that you get with people with the virus. And it sounds, I mean, I was so touched by this kingdom of the well and kingdom of the ill because um, because the, the other to whom we turn for support has that potential to drag us unwittingly, unwillingly into that kingdom of the ill when, when we're actually turning to them for support in that kingdom of the well, we have to fundamentally mistrust them just in case they drag us into illness. And they may not even be ill themselves. They could be asymptomatic and passing on to somebody else. And so it's, it seems to be a sort of shattering of the basic norms of interaction in terms of assumption of humanity and assumption of support. Even our friends, when we spend time with our friends, you know, there's a, suddenly it carries that risk of being teleported into the world that, that nobody wants to be in. And, and you mentioned about people not wanting to face their own mortality. That's why so often people find it very difficult to, to visit people who are ill because they don't want to be reminded. It, makes, uh, them, it can make them uncomfortable to be around somebody who is ill. And, and now we have that added, um, that added element of that person who visits to make us, to help try to bring us into the kingdom of the well. You know, Judaism is so profoundly, the, the mitzvah of visiting the sick is so important. And now we can't even do that. That person who would potentially help us come into the kingdom of the well is in fact somebody who might make us even more ill. 
Totally. And what you're saying kind of reminds me of two pieces of the book. The first is there's this famous story of Rabbi Yochanan, who is this faith healer, right? He goes around and he, he heals other people. And so one day he becomes sick. And so his students come and they go and they actually heal him. And our ancient rabbis 2000 years ago asked this question, how come he couldn't just heal himself? He's healing everybody else. And they basically say a prisoner cannot free himself from prison. So you need other people to do this. And so if people are not showing up, there is no way, despite how strong you are, for you to ever get out of it. The other thing that I'll say is that as much as it's great to be in person, and we've spent a lot of time outside with family and friends. I live in New Jersey, so it's kind of getting cold. It's a little bit different than New Mexico and where your listeners are listening. Um, but um, the, the truth is, um, you know, I'm a student of Martin Buber, who speaks about the fact that there are two ways to relate, I, it, and I, thou, right? I, it is the way you relate to an object. It's the way you relate to, um, you know, somebody for which you need something and you are not fully present with that person. There's no way with a cab driver that you can fully be present with the humanity of the cab driver when you've got other things on your mind, like, are they being safe? Are they getting me to a place that I need to be? Are they talking too much or too little, right? So, but the real people in your life, you can have these I-thou experiences where you fully are present with them and they are fully present with you. The truth is, if you're distracted because you're wondering, am I standing close enough or far enough to them? Is my mask on correctly? Um, should I be touching that thing that they just touched? There is no interaction you can possibly have that is fully present with another person. And so um, I don't know if it's if it's possible, maybe it is, but I haven't had it to have I thou interactions online. They usually happen in person, but I don't think in the COVID era, they can happen in person because of the distractions that exist because of it. And that's an enormous thing for humanity. I mean, Buber's I it and I thou is, is, is a wonderful metaphor here because we need moments of I thou. We can't fill our lives with I thou encounters. It's not humanly possible, but, but having the ability having the door open that we may have one of those encounters today is an essential part of humanity. And that door seems to be closed right now. Totally, absolutely. And, and that certainly leads to a very profound sense of loneliness. It really does, it really does. And, and I think that there are, there are things that synagogues can do to help. So for example, we do have, although imperfectly, a lot of virtual, um, support groups for people, for parents who are struggling to stay afloat with their kids who are being homeschooled, with uh, grandparents who haven't seen their grandkids in 10 months and are feeling like their kids are keeping them at arm's distance, with people whose parents are older who are freaking out that their parents are in nursing homes um, with potential outbreaks. And so the goal is to allow them to voice that because shame hides behind secrecy. And if you can get away from secrecy, that's when a whole world opens up to you to begin to address the problems that you are feeling uh, are keeping you at arm's distance from other people. We've only got a few minutes left, but talking about shame brings me to near the end of the book where you start talking about the biblical character of Job um, and how his companions go to console him and end up doing the exact opposite. And I wonder if you can just briefly share some thoughts on that and, and why that's so important, especially today. So there is this term um, in, in rabbinic Hebrew, it's about 2000 years old, and it's called Ona'at Devarim, 
which I translate as kind of overreaching, but it's harm caused by words. And you have to be really careful with what you say. Um, I often actually was just teaching a group of students about this, uh, but I often say that, um, that every act of comfort is often a theological statement. So for example, they are in a better place is a theological statement. God wanted them, so they took them. Um, we don't know why this happened is a theological statement, right? In your ability to understand the universe. Um, things happen for a reason. Um, it's all part of a plan. And you have to be very, very careful to not do harm as you are going to comfort people. And so after Job gets sick in the Bible, his friends show up and start saying all these theological things, you know, have you examined your deeds and made sure you didn't do anything to make God angry? Like there must be a reason. There's always a plan. And Job is screaming at them. And this is basically the whole book of Job, which is a little bit why it's kind of boring and saying over and over again, like I didn't do anything. It's not me. And his friends are like, are you sure? And he says, absolutely. And so um, if there are, there are a number of steps that you take when you're comforting someone who is hurting, right? Helping them tell their story by reflecting back what you hear, sitting with them in their pain, having cathartic moments where you cry together or pray together. But the number one thing you're supposed to do, I've been taught, is to not do harm. And the truth is, if you start saying things about the universe that is overreaching, you are causing harm to their own theological place. If you start crediting God for someone's cancer or a death, even if you personally think that that's involved, you are pulling that person away from God because they may not agree with you and they may be angry at God for their whole life. So you have to be very, very careful with statements that you make as you are choosing to comfort them. In the last, I, I mean, so important what you say. In, in the last two minutes, um, any final thoughts about loneliness, particularly, particularly today, based on the discussion that we've had? My sense is loneliness will always be there. And there are periods in your life where loneliness will feel exacerbated. Maybe you broke up with somebody. Maybe you're dealing in a pandemic. Maybe you just lost your job. And the truth is, it's at those moments that loneliness goes from a temporary state to a chronic state right? Everybody feels sad. Not everybody is depressed. That's the way loneliness is. Everybody will at points feel lonely. Probably everybody has this underlying loneliness that just exists, but not everybody is crippled by it. And our goal is not to address the people who have now got into the chronic state, though that is super important. Our number one goal is to figure out how to put things in place in our lives and the lives of our loved ones that add a buffer to keep us from ever falling into that chronic state. And that means helping ourselves and others surround ourselves with people who love and see us, having us find a sense of purpose, cultivating a practice that allows us to connect to God or the universe, however you see it. And if you're able to do that, when you fall, which we inevitably will, you will not fall that far and it will be easier to find your way back out. And if we, and uh, you know, as the co-president of the Interfaith Leadership Alliance, you know, if we faith leaders, if we teachers, friends, academics, if we people in positions of authority and power and, and uh, responsibility, if we are able to help in any way, I really do urge uh, any listeners who are struggling with loneliness, which you've really opened up for us um, as an inevitability, which we can respond to and grow from. 
if we can in any way help support you as a listener um, as you go through this difficult time, this extremely difficult period, then please do know that we will try to be there for you and, and all you have to do is reach out to us. Rabbi Mark Katz, this has been absolutely wonderful. Um, thank you so much for being on our show this evening. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Thanks again to my guest, Rabbi Mark Katz, Rabbi at Temple Ne'er Tamid in Bloomfield, New Jersey, and author of this wonderful book, The Heart of Loneliness. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching.